seated. As a part of your Christmas decorating at your home, uh, perhaps you have a nativity set. Uh, I know in Don's family, I see on social media, they take pictures of their nativity sets and post them online. And and, uh, that got me thinking about the wise men, the magi uh, from the east. And my older sister's husband, Norb, uh, he's quite a character. But when they set up their nativity scene in their house... Uh, Norb puts the wise men on the east side of the living room as far away from the nativity set as he can get them, and then every day they move a little closer. (laughs) And the grandchildren watch. When are they going to get there? When are they going to arrive? And, uh, of course, we know the story out of Matthew chapter 2 of the Magi uh, coming from the east, and actually they didn't exactly show up at the stable. I hate to burst your bubble, but Jesus was probably about two years old when they finally arrived. Uh, But they brought gifts, didn't they? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They brought these gifts. And as I thought about that, and as I've uh, studied that uh, a little bit and thought it through, I realized as I analyzed that passage carefully, there is one overlooked biblical fact in that story, and it's the fact that there is no mention of wrapping paper. There's no gift wrap mentioned at all. You know, if there would have been gift wrap, Matthew would have put it this way in the King James Version. And lo, the gifts were inside 600 square cubic cubits of paper, and the paper was festooned with pictures of Frosty the Snowman. And Joseph was going to throweth it away, but Mary saith unto him, she saith, hold it, holdeth it, that is nice paper, saveth it for next year. And Joseph did rolleth his eyeballs. And, of course, the baby Jesus was more interested in the paper than he was in the frankincense. And that's how Matthew would have put it if there would have been wrapping paper there. But those words don't, don't appear in the Bible, do they? Which means that the very first Christmas presents were not gift-wrapped. My point here is, is that uh, there are two striking characteristics out of this story about gift wrap. First of all, they were wise men. And secondly, they were men, you know. And I've, I think I read a study that uh, one of the genes of male DNA were missing the gene of gift wrap ability. I'm pretty sure they found that out at the University of Norwich when they were studying the DNA sequencing. Uh, we, we men, I'm sorry, we just have missed that gene. We wasn't given to us. And uh, I had done a non-scientific study of a couple people that I know. And uh, one guy says, I only wrap it because they're usually such poor gifts. I want to get out of the room before they get it open to know what it is. Another guy is not a big gift wrapper. He says, I spend about 15 seconds wrapping a gift, and they all look like giant spitballs. And so that's his approach, uh, and that's how he goes about it. Uh, But uh, I do wrap gifts when I am giving a gift, but I lack the necessary motor skills. My older sister down in Colorado, when she wraps a gift, I mean, it is a work of art. All the pattern matches on the seams. The edges are creased. She puts real ribbon around it and makes her own ribbons. None of this stick-on quick stuff. And, I mean, it's a work of art, but not so with me. You know, uh, I'm under the assumption that the more scotch tape, the better. You know, and I think that's basically kind of a male thing. The more scotch tape, the better. 
And uh, so that is one thing to recognize. One of the great things, and I wish I'd been on the ground floor of this, were gift bags. Remember a few years, a number of years ago, gift bags came out. What a great deal, you know. And I wish I would have been in on that. You know, they have a bag, and you put a little bow on it and a card, and you're done. And I noticed after the first year or two, the prices quadrupled because they recognized that a whole male population was buying gift bags for the gifts they were giving at Christmas. Uh, and by the way, men, don't try using a hefty uh, sack for your gift bag. You know, even though you put a ribbon on it, it's still a trash bag, and I don't think your wife will fully appreciate that. Well, enough about uh, gift wrap and gift giving this season. Actually, uh, the point is, is that uh, God has given us the best gift of all, and it continues to be the most wonderful gift and miraculous gift in the whole world. As we sang that ancient hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, again, it is a, it's a, a, a plea, a longing of the human heart, whether the human recognizes where the answer lies or not. There is a longing for completeness, for fullness, for everlasting life, and of course, Jesus gives us the answer. And that Christmas carol, the author, whoever originally wrote it back in the 800s, used those designations out of the book of Isaiah, the prophetic book of Isaiah. And today we are looking at the rod of Jesse or the root of Jesse or the shoot of Jesse, depending on how your translators translated it out of Isaiah chapter 11. Remember, Isaiah was a prophet in Judah and a prophet to Israel about 700 years, 800 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, before the first advent. And as you see on the back of your bulletin insert, there are a number of messianic or Messiah promises that are made in the book of Isaiah that Jesus Christ fulfilled or will be fulfilling. And we come to a major one today as we've traveled through this. Remember a prophet in Israel and Judah at that time, remember uh, they are foretelling what God is going to do, and there's a near fulfillment and then a far fulfillment, and that's what we see today. He's not, he also is uh, prophesying or foretelling by God's very revelation to him that the Messiah will be coming, this first advent, the one we look back on, but then he compresses time and goes to the future after the second advent, the second coming. Now, Old Testament prophecy I don't know if you're aware of this, but it does not prophesy at all the time we are living in. We live in the church age, and the church age is, age is described in the New Testament as a mystery, and a mystery in that context is a previously unknown truth, a previously unrevealed truth. God, in his wisdom and his exhaustive foreknowledge, did not reveal to the Old Testament prophets that there would be a gap between the first and second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a time called the church age beginning in Acts chapter 2, and we are in the midst of it, and we don't know how long it's going to last. <clears throat> God will com complete and consummate the age. And so Isaiah is talking about the first advent initially, and that will be a near fulfillment, and then he will advance into the second advent in this passage in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah is writing, as we saw in chapter 7 a couple of weeks ago, during the reign of Ahaz in Judah. Ahaz was a man who was not a man of faith in God. He was a king. He was not a good king. And Isaiah confronted him because there was difficulty, there were problems, there were military forces trying to overthrow the government of Judah, overthrow Jerusalem, and set up a puppet king in there. 
Remember, the kingdom of Israel had been divided after Solomon's death between his sons, and there was the northern ten tribes, and that was called Israel. That gets confusing sometimes in the Old Testament. And then the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, which are then referred to as Judah, headquartered in Jerusalem. And so the northern ten tribes had made an alliance with Aram, Uh, to attack Jerusalem, overthrow King Ahaz, and set up a puppet king at that time. It was a power play. It's interesting that there are always power plays in world politics, aren't there? The global scene, there's always this desire for power. Well, Ahaz, he was confronted by uh, Isaiah in chapter 7 and told him to align himself with the Almighty God, and God would protect him, basically. And he refused that, and he started to build an alliance with the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrian Empire was the superpower of its day. Uh, they're the ones with the, the, all, the, all the military hardware of the day, and they were taking over the world. And so Isaiah was given three signs in these chapters. In fact, <clears throat> the book uh, in Isaiah of these, these verses from, or chapters from chapter 7 through chapter 12 sometimes is called the book of Emmanuel. The book of God is with us because it's contained in here are these three Uh, foretelling that there is a king about to be born in chapter 7. Behold, a virgin will be with child. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Chapter 9, a king is born for a child will be born to us. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And today the king is shown as reigning. He is reigning. He is on his throne. He is all-powerful. So who is this one? And so Ahaz has this choice, and yet Isaiah is there telling them because of their choices, because of their spiritual abandonment of the God of Israel, of the God of Judah, they will be disciplined. This goes clear back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God promises the people of Israel, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will discipline you. And we see this occurring to the northern ten tribes when God uses the Assyrian military might to discipline the northern ten tribes and carried them off into captivity in 722, some 13 years after Isaiah wrote this and prophesied about what was going to happen to them and to the nation of or the empire of Assyria. And so uh, Isaiah is there to speak forth God's word, even though it is rejected by those who have the responsibility to govern the nation, to take care of the people. And Isaiah had three signs that God gave him. The first one was a son. And uh, his name, if we went back, was Mahershaler Hashbaz. And uh, it's quite a name. And so if you're expecting a son, that might be one you could pick. But what it means is that there's going to be a time of desolation. It is a sign from God. God told Isaiah what to name this son. And because Ahaz had been disobedient, because the people of Israel and Judah had been disobedient, there will be a time of desolation. And that's what he is getting to here. The second sign, he had a second son. And his name is Shir Yashub. Shir Yashub. And it means a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. And the purpose of the name was to give Isaiah hope in the midst of the desolation and to remind him that through what happens in Israel and Judah, that God will always have a remnant of people who are faithful to him. And the third sign in, the, in these uh, chapters is the name of the prophet Isaiah himself. Isaiah means the salvation of God in chapters 11 and 12. 
And so we see that uh, God has given him signs and a purpose as he's revealed himself to it. Now, in verse 1, chapter 1 of verse 11, it says, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. The shoot will spring, spring forth. That verb there, it connects us to the previous two verses. And in chapter 10, if we took the time, we would recognize that God not only is judging Judah, but after Assyria carries them into captivity in 722, that God will judge Assyria. And, of course, he did judge Assyria. And in verses 33 through 34, he uses this idea that Assyria is like a cedar. In fact, they are identified as a cedar, the cedars of Lebanon, because they came out of the north there. And uh, they are identified that way. And God is going to judge them. And so that verb in verse 1 about a shoot will spring, uh, the idea is is that it's taken from the realm of agriculture and of, of horticulture and that Uh, The kingdom had sunk to such a low point, there must be a new beginning. And this uh, Assyrian empire that was ready to destroy the Davidic kingdom was actually the uh, ones who were going to ultimately perish. And the Davidic kingdom would rise again. You know, we are 2,900 years removed from these events. And yet Paul and the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15 tells us the value of this. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. And so the Apostle Paul is recognizing there that we can go back and look at these Old Testament accounts and grow in our faith, and it will benefit us in this day and age. Assyria, as I said, was likened in Scripture to the cedars of Lebanon. Ezekiel, another prophet, in chapter 31, verse 3, said, Behold, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches and a shadowing shroud and a high structure, and his top was among the thick boughs. And so we see that they are called cedars of Lebanon. Back a couple pages, if you'll turn back with me to chapter 6, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, chapter 6 is where Isaiah is commissioned as a prophet. It's a great study of worship, of encountering the righteous holy God. But there uh, it tells us in verses 12 and 13 that the Lord has removed men far away and forsaken places that are many in the midst of land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like the terebinth, or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Because Isaiah asked God when he, in this great worship scene in chapter 6, what am I supposed to do? And God says, go, and the people will not hear you. The people will rebel against my message. And But he has, he, in this commissioning in Isaiah 6, he tells them and gives him hope that the people will be like an oak stump. Uh, Now, what this means is this, is that there's going to be left in Israel a trunk that is cut down, but it is an oak stump. And anything, if you know something about oaks, you'll know that there is hope, even with the stump of an oak tree. Uh, What I've learned, and I did not know uh, totally about this, but when oaks are cut down, and if you don't deal with the stump, there will be a shoot that comes out of the middle of the stump, and it'll be the shoot of an oak tree. But there's an interesting thing about cedar, and I recognize this from my time working in the woods, is that in a cedar, when you cut it down, it never has shoots. The the stump just rots in the ground. When you cut a cedar down, it rots. And uh, I don't know if you knew that or not. 
But it's a beautiful way the Holy Spirit is communicating, describing to Isaiah and to those who would listen to him that the Assyrian is like a cedar tree cut down by God. And that's what verses 33 and 34 of chapter 10 are talking about. He is going to take down this strong man. He's going to cut him like a cedar tree and there will be no shoot. And of course, we know that the Assyrian Empire was defeated and it melted away. There was nothing left of it is cut down. And, uh, but Israel is cut down because it is being disciplined, but it is an oak tree. And that takes us to verse 1, that this shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse. Now, Jesse was David's father. And Jesus, the Messiah, is in the line of David. We know that from the genealogies. And he was the rightful heir to the throne, the forever throne of David that God had promised David, that God had promised that there would be a throne forever and ever and uh, so Isaiah writes about this. First of all, he writes about Jesus' family tree and his character, this ancestry, in verses 1 through the first part of 3. The shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse. Why didn't he say David? Because there had been a number of kings in the Davidic line between David and now this coming Messiah, and they were all disappointments for the most part. And this messianic king, the Messiah, is bringing the truth. He is the fulfillment of all of this prophecy. And so he uses the stem of Jesse, plus this is a very low point in Israel's history. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. There's the promise that it will flourish again. This is the promise for Israel. And so God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7:16, a critical verse in understanding the Davidic line that God is fulfilling. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Uh, that is God's promise to King David. And Jesus' family tree is the fact that he is descended through uh, Mary from the Davidic line. His mission to earth, we uh, overlook the manner of the advent sometimes. God set up a pattern that we would never have dreamed of. Isn't that wonderful about God? He doesn't do it all the time like we humans would do things. Uh, he, Jesus was born in a stable to a lowly peasant couple in an insignificant town in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire. How would we have arranged it if we were in charge of that event uh, the same pattern the Lord followed all his days, and the church might take a hint today that Jesus does things differently. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. Again, this, this tree, this shoot, this stump imagery, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. God's promise to David is fulfilled in the Davidic line, and God is planning to fulfill that, finish that in the future. In Revelation 5.5, 5, when we look into the future, this name is applied to our Savior. Uh, Stop weeping, one of the elders said. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, Messiah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Revelation 22.16, at the end of our Bibles, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things, for the churches, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. New beginnings 
Jesus's ancestry. And Isaiah makes a point of emphasizing that because the people knew through other prophetic words, through the promise to David and even Abraham back in Genesis 12, that there would be a Messiah coming through the Davidic line. And then we see in verse 2 and the first part of verse 3, the character of this one, the shoot of the uh, of the uh, stem of Jesse. In verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus in the first advent when he came. And, of course, the example of that we find in Matthew 3 at his baptism. If you remember that passage, it says the spirit of the Lord, like a dove, it is a figure of speech, came upon him. And he, the God the Father said he is the well-pleased one. And he followed three spiritual couplets here in verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2 with me. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the first couplet, the spirit of counsel and strength, the second one, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Wisdom is a general reservoir of truth, and understanding is a specific application of that wisdom. And uh, contrast that with the powerful boasts and the foolish boasts of the Assyrian kings in chapter 10, verse 13. Counsel and strength, the ability to devise a right course of action and personal powers to see the action through. Knowledge and the fear of the Lord, it's true loyalty and worship. And then the first part of verse 3, it says, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? To delight is from the word that is like a, is a perfume, it's a scent. It's like smelling something that is really pleasing and wonderful. A pleasing aroma became to mean to delight in and brings delight. God's grace is wonderful, the perfume of our lives. To fear God is to respond to him in awe, trust, worship, obedience. And uh, all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in these first verses, one and two. The Messiah came to do the will of the Father. Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to do the will of the Father. One time, I remember years and years ago, there was a preacher that I was listening to uh, at our church in Dallas, and he said, never be shocked by sin, but always be staggered by grace. And uh, that has stuck with me since that time. The super miracle of the incarnation, our very creator, preserver, judge, becomes our kinsman redeemer, our sin bearer. Of all the miracles and mysteries, that is the most staggering of all of history, of all of time, of our whole experience. In verse second part of verse 3 through 5, Isaiah moves from this first advent. This, this Messiah is going to be born. He is coming, of course, 700 years later. We see him born in that cave or stable in Bethlehem, the coming Messiah. Uh, and now he moves to the way future, but he doesn't see the gap in between this thing called the church age. He is looking forward to the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom, which is the kingdom prophesied by the Old Testament prophets that would last a thousand years. Uh, so there is this issue here with uh, different church traditions. And some think we're in the millennium right now. But let me challenge you, if you think that's the truth, uh, to analyze these words that we're going to, to uh, look at and say that we are in the kingdom now. Uh, my mantra is the kingdom is not yet. The kingdom is not yet. Uh, because it isn't. Christ will judge with righteousness. Emmanuel's righteous judgments. Look at the second part of verse 3. It says, And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, 
but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips, and he will slay the wicked. Jesus Christ will judge with righteousness. He is able to distinguish between appearances and reality. If you've ever served as a jury member on a criminal trial at some court, uh, you were to judge on the testimony of the witnesses and the evidence submitted, weren't you? And uh, all a jury could do is evaluate that testimony of the witnesses and the data of the evidence at face value. A jury cannot see the hearts of the people involved in that criminal uh, case. But we are a- Jesus, this, this coming king, is able to distinguish between appearances and reality. He can see the truth of each and every matter and will judge righteously. It's not a basis of human judgment. Jesus will not judge by his senses in the millennial kingdom. He will judge by spiritual truth. Now, my question to you is, how do we judge? How does our president, Donald Trump, judge things? How does Theresa May, the uh, prime minister of Great Britain, judge things? How does our Supreme Court judge things? How does any authority judge things? How do our rulers carry out their judgment? They can only judge by their senses. And, of course, that brings it to how do we judge when we are in a position of judging the truthfulness or the lack of truthfulness of something. We only judge by the externals uh, that we see. But our Lord does not judge by his senses. He judges by the true reality of things. He judges uh, from the perfection of his character, who and what he is, his glorified divine being in heaven. He is the God-man. He never makes mistakes. We are inundated with a government that is seeking to justify lying, aren't they? I mean, it goes across the aisle, all sorts of people. You don't know what to believe. Uh, One of those uh, I just read recently in uh, the news was accused of lying, and uh, his response was, it's perfectly okay for the government to lie. And, of course, he meant in matters of national security. I don't want to pass judgment on that. I want to merely say this, when Jesus Christ rules in the millennial kingdom, it will be transparent, open, and completely truthful. There is no necessity for lying at that time uh, because he is coming from a position of absolute truth. In meeting out justice, Jesus Christ simply speaks to pronounce the the, the sentence. The king needs no other weapon of enforcement uh, for his words. Revelation 19 again and it'll come from his mouth a sharp sword that with it he may smite the nations. He will roll, rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. We often don't think of those passages when we come to Christmas, do we, in this little babe in the manger. But this is what Jesus, he is the king. He is the one who will reign. Jesus Christ will rule with righteousness and faithfulness, verse 5. Righteousness will be the belt around his loins and faithfulness the belt around his waist. It's readiness of action, the one constantly purposing to act in the cause of righteousness, the divine normalcy, if you will. The belt of faithfulness, readiness of action, the one constantly purposing to cause of faithfulness, that which holds immovably to the course of a divinely appointed plan. Jesus Christ always acts with moral integrity and steadfast loyalty as we look at here. Now we come to verses 6 through 9. 
and it is Emmanuel's future kingdom. And uh, these verses are perplexing to many about these animals, about these children, uh, about the lack of uh, meat eaters, uh, that meat eaters become vegetable eaters, if you will, eat straw, Uh, this realm of the king. And uh, for those who say we live in the millennium now, uh, I watch the nature shows, and the lions are still eating the gazelles. That's all I know. They're still eating them. This is not uh, in place yet. Uh, Most interesting passage in the scripture in some respects, uh, John Calvin and Martin Luther said, this is all symbolical. We are are not to take it seriously. Uh, Those were the uh, men who began the Reformation, by the way. Uh, Modern commentaries say, well, it's literal. Isaiah meant it as literal, but it's just a beautiful dream. It's just a wish. It really will never take place. Uh, The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the child. Uh, There was a theologian, uh, Dr. Feinberg, who said they never lie down together today except that the kids lies down inside of the leopard. Uh, So uh, there is this movement today that this is just allegorical. And it's interesting when they come to Scripture, they spiritualize it or allegorize it. But that was not Isaiah's point here. Uh, because one of the things that I was reminded of, I went to church off and on from the time I was a baby. My parents always had me in church. Uh, Every time the doors were open, we were in church, even though I was a little pagan until I was 28. But for the first 28 years of my life, I remember praying these words almost every Sunday. uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You ever thought about that, the Lord's Prayer, or what we call the Lord's Prayer? It's really the disciples' prayer that Jesus taught them. But he's praying for the kingdom. And when you pray that prayer, you're praying for this millennial kingdom to come, for the establishment of it, because we know that's God's will, because it's been prophesied, it will be fulfilled. There will be a literal King Jesus on David's throne in Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. And he will reign, and he will rule with righteousness, with faithfulness, and he will be one who is forever and forever. This future kingdom, he will provide peace and safety. When we think about this passage about the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, calf and the lion, the fatling together, the little boy, and by that means just a toddler, will lead them. Uh, there is three fa- facets of a renewed creation because all things will be made right in the millennium. There will not be sin visible in the millennium. God takes care of it as a ruler immediately. But three facets, there will be a reconciliation of old hostilities. And that's, that's pictured as the predators and the prey come together. And this youngster will exercise dominion originally given in Eden. This is a picture going back to the Garden of Eden. When I think about that, and I know that uh, maybe many of us have people and things in our lives that need to be reconciled, reconciliation of old hostilities. I don't know how God's going to take care of that, but he will take care of that. There will be a change of nature in verse 7. The cow, the bear, the lion, and ox will all eat the same food. Young lions, the young will lie down together. The points of Eden are restored, Genesis chapter 1. 
In Genesis 1, 29 through 30, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, every tree that has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. You know, originally, the predator and the prey were not in God's design in the Garden of Eden. So not only is there reconciliation of old hostilities, there is a change of nature. There will be the curse removed, the enmity between uh, the woman, seed, and the spirit is gone, Genesis 3.15. The nursing child and the weaned infant have nothing to fear from vipers. When Don and I were in Indonesia in Borneo in the jungles visiting our missionary friends, uh, we were warned and told that every consider every uh, everything poisonous, whether it's insects, but particularly the vipers, particularly the, the snakes. And there were lots of snakes. They had cobras, boa constrictors, crates, which are the most poisonous snake in the world. And uh, we recognize that, and I hate snakes anyway, and then to be in the midst of all of that. And we saw enough of them that uh, I realized that this passage, when this comes true, when the millennial kingdom is set up, that a child can sit by the the, the nest of a cobra, and he won't be bothered. The, God will take care of that. And so there is a change of nature. The curse is removed. And verse 9, Jesus Christ will be known in all the earth. Look at verse 9 again. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the water, as the waters cover the sea, there will be a restoration of peace, of holiness, restoration of knowledge, full of knowing God. Verse 10 uh, forms a couplet. This is really a poem that Isaiah wrote, and it joins to verse 1 to emphasize the root of Jesse is the answer to our whole life. Remember verse 1, there's a shoot that will spring up from the stem of Jesse. Verse 10, in that day, you go through Isaiah, underline in that day, because it much of the time uh, talks about the time when the millennial kingdom will be established in that day. The nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Jesus Christ will be the rallying banner. He magnetically draws all people unto himself, all the nations unto himself. Jesus Christ will provide glorious rest, he tells us here. He provides us with a home, the waters of a resting place. That's the picture of calmness and rest. He provides a place of rest from the storms of life. When you think of the ark, remember after the flood, that great storm, and Noah and all those on the ark, all the animals, all Noah's family, the ark rested on Mount Ararat. That is the picture here. There is a rest, a fulfillment of God's plan. There's a rest for his people that will be at home with him. So the Messiah, uh, where he dwells, is where we want to be. Now, for the church, we will have a role and a responsibility, even though we will not go through the tribulation. We are in the church age now. The next event, prophetically, is the great tribulation. The church will be caught away. It will no longer be there because it disappears after Revelation chapter 3, before the wrath of God is poured out upon the world. But then after the millennium is established, after the seven-year tribulation, that's a thousand years, and we will have responsibilities, and we will have joy in the process of that. In verses 11 and 12, there'll be a remnant restored. If we were to go on through the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, 
it will say in verse 11, it says it will happen on that day, again on that day, that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathos, Cush, Elam, Shinar, and Hamath, and from the islands of the sea, he will gather all people unto himself. Chapter 12 is really a song that Israel will sing in the future. The Jewish people will sing it that are believers in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But I wanted to point out to you in verse 1, then you say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. But verse 2 is the key here. Verse 2 is the key. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. But what about us? We live in the in-between time. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life, you can claim that verse. You can say, behold, I am saved because of what Jesus Christ has done. I have a future and a hope. But we all know that there is adversity and difficulty in life and pain and loss and many things that all human beings face. And believers are not exempt from those problems, from suffering. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 29 wrote, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And in that passage, he goes on, I call it the three groans passage. Three groans. Because it tells us in verse 22 that we know that the whole creation groans. Verse 23, we ourselves groan within ourselves. Verse 26, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What's all this groaning going on? Well, we all do groan, don't we? The world groans in this sin, in this issues that are going on around us. It tells us that creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. Isn't that interesting? And you ladies who've had children can understand that better than any of us can. That there is this anticipation, yet there is a gigantic, painful process to go through to enjoy the blessings of this new child. And that's what creation is waiting for. It's waiting for things to be made right. I think of the verse, this verse every time I see an animal that's been hit on the highway. And I realize it's, it's not in uh, God's original plan in the Garden of Eden And uh, that animal is suffering and groaning, if you will, because of the fallenness of this physical planet. And we ourselves groan as Christians. We eagerly await, Paul says, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Remember, our bodies have not been redeemed yet. That's why we're afflicted with pain, with uh, sickness, with uh, problems, uh, because these bodies are not redeemed yet. And we look forward to that time when they will be redeemed, purified, made holy, will have a glorified body. But we ourselves grown. But isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter, who is our guide, who is our teacher, also groans, and he intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. I don't think we'll really understand until we get to heaven uh, the amount of pain that the Trinity has gone through, seeing the choices of human beings. And so the Holy Spirit is praying and interceding for his people, for believers in Jesus Christ, with groanings too deep for words. In other words, he is taking a place and praying that we would be relieved of this soon. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The will of God is that 
this world that's going on as it is, but there will be a consummation. There will be a millennial kingdom. Jesus Christ will reign in righteousness and justice. He will be fair in all things. God is fair and complete and perfect. So the big picture, I think one of the takeaways for me is to remind myself that this is not all there is, what we're experiencing. And uh, we go through the Christmas season, and we, then we put away our decorations and forget about the gifts we received and uh, the time together, and yet we need to keep a big picture, this long view, the realization that this is not all there is, that we have that future and a hope. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God, the wonderful truth in it. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we sense the time